Welcome back to another episode of Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 John Landis-directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. I am Robert Black. You can call me The Professor. You might know me from Dave Made a Minute, the podcast where a whole bunch of us explore the film Dave Made a Maze, one minute at a time. The twist. Many of the participants have never seen the film. Some don't even know what film they're sampling. They get their minutes and they tackle them as they see fit. So what is this film telling us about men and women? What is it telling us about Los Angeles, about America, about humanity? And I do not mean that it is doing any of these things on purpose. But any film will tell you something about the time and place that it was made. Tina Olson lent the dark side of the dream the image of Los Angeles in film noir. Quote, The film noir cycle gave the urban critique in general, and the Los Angeles critique in particular, a visual form that was both concrete and convincing. By combining tough, urban-set narratives with realistic, on-location shooting in American cities, the urban critique became, through the power of the movies, persuasive, mass-produced, and directed toward a mass audience previously unaffected by this message. Film noir, literally dark film, is a loosely defined cycle of Hollywood movies whose heyday was in the 1940s and early 1950s. The noir films were urban stories of violent crime and pervasive corruption that featured powerless protagonists who were entrapped and victimized by the chaotic and threatening world in which they lived. The narratives fall into several genres, psychological thrillers, detective and mystery stories, and crime dramas, and usually take the form of an investigation relying on events of the past to explain motivation and or resolve conflicts, while the protagonists attempt to restore order and meaning to their lives. The nihilistic vision that pervades the cycle determines that they are seldom successful. The structure of the narratives, which includes first-person narrations, subjective camera shots, flashbacks, and convoluted chronologies, makes the audience identify with the protagonist and experience his defeat. The unity implied by the term film noir derives from the distinctive mood, dark and existential, type of protagonist, marginal and alienated, and visual style, expressionistic found in these films, end quote. Mid-80s, late Cold War America, a time and a place full of consumption under the shadow of death, at least for some. I grew up in a cultish church full of preaching of the end times, so I see the 1980s as an explicit mix of American excess and doom that reads in retrospect like an apocalyptic orgy. Behind us, Civil rights, feminism, jazz, disco, Vietnam, the greatest generation, and baby boomers are built up by American hegemony to consume and consume. Home video and cable television has brought audiences far more access to film, and filmmakers far more access to audiences. We start this minute in the dark. A hand over Diana's mouth, but I want to talk about what this film is about, or why it is about the things it is about. Never mind all the long quotes I've offered you about film noir or the femme fatale, the short version is this. In a post-World War II world where American women have been let loose into the workforce, female power and female sexuality is a threat to men. Meanwhile, you have your various civil rights movements, black, brown, gay, and the 70s operate under a strange illusion of personal freedom even as America is swinging conservative again. And when it comes to the Reagan years, 
Female sexuality is on display in film, but is often objectified, rarely empowered. Ed is a man emasculated by his impotence on his job, his impotence in his marriage, and he is paired with Diana, defeminated by Jack's inattention. Hossie's ineffectuality, Bud's distaste. Men want her dead. But the film operates as a constant visual reminder that Diana is beautiful, and all of these men, including Ed, should be falling in line to serve her. But they do not. She is summarily rejected by Larry on behalf of Jack, rejected by her own brother, and while Ed ends up being dragged along, it is a good while before he could be termed a willing participant in her adventure. But it is 1985. What does it matter? We are all going to die soon anyway. June 1983, War Games shows us how quickly the world can be destroyed in a nuclear conflagration. 20th November 1983, more than 100 million people in 39 million households watched the day after on ABC. 23rd September 1984, 6.9 million watched threads on BBC2. 26th October 1984, The Terminator offers up an inevitable apocalypse and takes the number one box office spot. From Rambo to Ruskies to Red Dawn, there is something in the air about Russia and America and the end of the world. And here we have a man and a woman trying to get around the streets of L.A.? Who cares? Or is that the point? Boil it all down, and Diana is part of an international theft, drawing the attention of Iranian secret police of mysterious Frenchmen of American federal agents, and Ed is following in her wake like the 1980s follow in the wake of the Cold War conflict in Vietnam, in Korea, Russian invasion of Afghanistan, American arms sales in Latin America. Ed is every regular American trying to hold down a day job and have a stable home when the world is edging to a cliff and might not be able to stop. Of course he can't sleep. How did any of us sleep? But this is fiction. This L.A. is not the real L.A., unless it is. In film noir, the setting matters. Again, Tina Olson lent, quote, The city in film noir is the real contemporary urban environment, and it functions as both background and metaphor. The noir city depicted most frequently at night is not a neutral backdrop, but a place of danger and excitement, a wasteland and a carnival, an incipient dream and nightmare, a depiction that is firmly within the American tradition of urban imagery. The film noir city is also a metaphor for the protagonist's dark night of the soul, representing the internal chaos and latent violence of individuals as well as that of their society. Many of the film narratives drew on the pre-existent body of tough or hard-boiled novels, with their alienated protagonists and portrayal of urban malaise and frustrated dreams. The combination of this narrative style and urban image with a distinctive visual style that coupled long takes, extreme camera angles, and chiaroscuro lighting with location shooting had an unquestionable effect on the audience's perception of urban reality. End quote. The explicit reality could be any city, could be any place where one man and one woman struggle to survive. America is at the tail end of a long existential crisis in 1985. In retrospect, it is near that end. The other crises will follow. But in the moment, there is no end in sight. You enter the tunnel, you come out on the other side, and you hope no one is there to kill you. Another day comes, you kiss your wife, you eat your eggs, you go to your job, rinse and repeat. Because the sheer enormity of an actual nuclear war is so hard to fathom even when you have seen it on screen. It is unimaginably destructive, unimaginably huge, 
and its shadow can barely be dispelled by the shininess of whatever new film is in theaters, whatever new product is in stores. That shiny red jacket can only distract so much from the quartet plus of men who are out to end your life. Unless you can find someone to come along with you for the ride. Ian Kaplan suggests in Women in Film, Both Sides of the Cinema, quote, In Hollywood films, then, women are ultimately refused a voice, a discourse, and their desire is subjected to male desire. They live out silently frustrated lives, or if they resist their placing, sacrifice their lives for their daring, end quote. Diana could be a femme fatale, could actively manipulate all of these men, but she is framed as far more docile, more innocent. She strides naked past that doorframe in minute 29 without a care in the world. Hasi has been dead maybe an hour at that point. Ed sits in the living room inside of the doorframe, and she is comfortable perhaps from her modeling days, or innocent perhaps, because that's the film noir female she is. Ed is not a threat to her. And neither is her sexuality a threat to Ed. Still, a hand on your mouth while you were sleeping is never good, and that is how this minute begins. We're inside that magic tunnel that will transport us a few miles east from Bel Air to Beverly Hills proper. It is probably just a set, an imaginary space that offers our leads respite from the dangers that have hounded them. Diana fell asleep immediately upon settling down. Ed, as we might expect, has not slept. You scared the shit out of me. It's dark. I've been sitting here watching the sleep for nine hours. Can we go now? She opens her eyes wide, trying to be fully awake. Oh boy, I really conked out. Despite what I said last minute about the tunnel interlude being metaphorically sexual, in this moment the roles here are closer to child and parent. That is how Diana interacts with her men, is it not? They take care of her. She is the diminutive one. And they are, in their various ways, her, in the vernacular, sugar daddies. Yes, we did. He moves toward the gate to open it. It does not budge. Diana emerges in the darkness behind him. This thing's locked. Mm, no, it she puts her red jacket back on. Maybe it did once. She grabs the gate and pushes. It falls. You must be stronger than your luck. Second 28, we cut to exterior, Jack's house, night. Really, we are in the yard of 1011 North Beverly Drive, the Beverly House, built in 1927 by Gordon Kaufman for Milton Getz of Union Bank and Trust, lying on 3.5 acres and encompassing 20,570 square feet in the main house alone. The property has 19 beds, 29 baths, 8 fireplaces, 2 movie projection rooms, 2 tennis courts, a tennis pavilion with 2 bathrooms, an art deco nightclub, 3 pools, a poolside cabana with 2 bedrooms and 2 bathrooms, parking for 20 vehicles, room for 400 guests for a seated dinner, and more than a 1,000 for a casual get-together, and it is entirely hidden from the streets nearby. Access is beyond a gate in an 800-foot driveway. Once home to William Randolph Hearst and actress Marion Davies, the Beverly House also served as a honeymoon location for John F. Kennedy. Later, the house served as Kennedy's West Coast Presidential Election Headquarters. It featured prominently in The Godfather and The Bodyguard. 
1985, along with Into the Night, it was featured in Fletch. And there you can get a great look at its two-story wood-paneled library. The house went on the market again just last year, priced at $135 million. And in 2007, the central mansion, along with three surrounding homes, 45,000 square feet on 6.5 acres, was priced at $165 million, making it the most expensive residential property in the U.S. For comparison, in 1946, Marion Davies paid only $120,000 when she bought it for Hearst, who was her lover at the time. Hearst died in the house in 1951. The following year, Davies threw one of the biggest parties in Beverly Hills at the time in the mansion with close to 1,000 people attending, including Sammy Davis Jr. Diana, with Ed following a good dozen feet behind her, approaches past the three pools. You can see the cabanas, the Venetian columns, at least one marble bench, at least half a dozen statues, carefully maintained hedges and flower beds, and some nice old-fashioned street lamps lighting the way. Second 33. Diana glances back at Ed. He closes the gap between them as they come to a staircase. The camera pans down and then right with them as they come up onto a raised courtyard. As a large fountain comes into frame from the right, Diana opens her purse to retrieve her keys. And time runs out for this minute. Incidental Music with Some of My Fears by Daisy May, available on freemusicarchive.org under a Creative Commons Sharealike License. Once again, I am Robert Black. You may call me The Professor. Check out lemmingdrops.com to see all the stuff I have been up to, including Dave Made a Minute. Dave Made a Minute. The podcast where a whole bunch of us explore the film Dave Made a Maze, one minute at a time. The Twist. Many of their participants have never seen the film. Some don't even know what film they're sampling. They get their minutes and they tackle them as they see fit. Throw in interviews with some of the filmmakers and actors and, like this show, it was a grab bag of approaches and tones, but overall, it was horribly fun. You can find the Into the Night podcast on iTunes and Google Play, or check out nightminute.com. Follow at Night Minute on Twitter or join us on Facebook in the King Lives Listener's Limo. Join us again here next time on the Into the Night Minute. Do we thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category. 